I'm really excited today because I'm going to meet somebody that I've never met before, but I'm a huge fan. He's a writer, director, filmmaker, and um, one of Britain's biggest young talents. He's given us Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz and Last Night in Soho and Baby Driver. And I'm really excited to meet him. His name is Edgar Wright. Well, I am so thrilled that you would agree to do this. It's fabulous. I'm over the moon. And as I said to you before we came on on mic, that my, I'll get a gold star from my daughter because she's a huge fan, as am I, I have to say. But she introduced me to your work, so I have her to thank. <laughs> oh, that's, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very, it's always that thing where, you know, there's somebody who's like, you're obviously famous to me and have been for most of my life. So it's always a trip when you find out that they know who you are. <laughs> you know, it's weird, isn't it? And it's also weird because, you know, what happened to me happened when I was really young, you know. So it was so weird for me, especially when I went to kind of Hollywood and I'd meet like these, what I thought were these amazing. Well, I met my hero, which was Fred Astaire. Oh, yeah. And, and he knew who I was. And it was like, oh, my goodness. You know, I mean, he was an older man then. But so I know I know the feeling. It's 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 lovely, but it is peculiar. <laughs> this is the first time we've ever actually we've emailed before, but we've never actually met in person. I know. Although I have been in the same room as you once because I saw oh. you do a and a for the boyfriend at the BFI oh, South Bank. Yeah, I, I was there at that screening. Oh, were um, you? Yeah, I was, because I really love that movie, and I'd never seen it on the big screen. And uh, so it was a real treat to see you talk about it. I think this was probably this was after Ken Russell had passed away. Yeah, well, he was due, the sad thing was, he was due to be there that night, because it was set up, as you know, these things get set up a long time before. And we were going to do the Q&A together. And then sadly, I think about two weeks before, we lost... Yeah. Dear Ken, you know, because I, I owe him so much. He changed my life. <laughs> he really did all those years ago. Well, I want to maybe, I mean, I want to ask you about the boyfriend and the, and the Blues Brothers, actually, because both of which are sort of favourites of mine. Maybe we can talk about that later. Yeah, you tell we me. will, because I'm going to be asking you about your <laughs> I just want to ask you questions. I'll, I'll get told off. It's not, it's not about you, Twiggy. <laughs> Before we start, what are you drinking? Are you a tea? Are you a tea drinker? I am. Oh, yes, but I, I, I'm such an espresso junkie. I mean, it's oh. a real problem, and so I'm having an espresso. It's quite early in the morning. You're allowed. It's not early in the morning. It's lunchtime. <laughs> sorry, but I do like tea, especially because I'm, I'm in London, but I have spent a lot of time in the states, and there are a couple of places that sell British tea. There's the Laurel Canyon store that has this oh, thing yeah. called the, the British Isle. Oh, and do they? I, know, so I remember that. They do have PG tips, so that would still be my favorite. <laughs> Good old British brand. For the listeners, I held up a box of PG tips, like just just in case I needed to show to you what they look like. <laughs> oh well, I'm on the very posh lemon and ginger. Oh, nice. Mm. I do like a green tea as well. Yeah, my husband drinks green. Oh, it's a bit bitter for me, actually. It's also got quite a lot of caffeine in green tea. Well, the, the uh, thing is, when maybe I'm maybe that's why you like it. <laughs> well, that's the thing. When I'm working, I drink so much coffee that two things happen during a day: is my producer 
and PA have this kind of, I think they start swapping out my coffee for decaffeinated without telling me. <laughs> because by the sixth coffee, they're like, I'm sure Leo, who I work with, who's one of my producers, says to my PA, Rich, don't give him any more coffee. And then they start <laughs> swapping it out for decaffeinated. And then, if, and then if somebody has said, Edgar, you can't have any more espressos today, I say, okay, I'll have a green tea or a black tea. So definitely like a caffeine. Well, you see, with me, I, the reason I don't, I don't drink coffee, because it, it makes my heart palpitate. I mean, yes. all those years ago when I tried it, I mean, you know, when I, when I first became a model in 1966 and I went to Paris, all the girls who were much older than me, I was this funny little kid, they were all smoking gitan cigarettes, which I yeah. thought was really – so I started smoking gitan, which were really strong. Yeah, yeah. Now when I think back. And then I tried coffee. I, I went with the cigarettes, but I couldn't take the coffee because it just made my heart palpitate. So I think a lot of those things like cigarettes and coffee, you're emulating what you've seen grown-ups yeah, do. absolutely. Like people start smoking gitans after they see jean Pelt. Paul Belmondo <laughs> breathless <laughs> or like somebody asked me the other day I, I I was I was drinking my friend's daughter saw me drinking an espresso in a tiny cup oh yeah and she, and she asked one. me she said what is that and I said it's a drink that adults pretend to like <laughs> <laughs> but you know now in most cafes they do a thing called a baby chino yes I mean, I I know because I've got grandchildren and, and my little granddaughter loves it. And it's what it is, it's hot milk with a bit of chocolate. Um, oh, yeah. There's also a dog version of that as well. A, a dog version? <laughs> I haven't had one, but the, the coffee place that I go to <laughs> said, because I bring my dog in there in the morning, and they said, oh, we're going to start serving a puppuccino soon. So That's I was like, I don't know what that is, but he will definitely try one. What dog have you got? He's a miniature schnauzer. He's for any fans of Spaced, I kind of acquiesced. My girlfriend wanted to have a dog and in fact named the dog for a long time before he was born or we knew where we would get one from. <laughs> and I'd never had a pet before. And I was not against the idea, but my one kind of concession was, I, well, it was like, can it, can it be a miniature schnauzer <laughs> like, like the dog from Spaced? Because um, Simon Pegg currently has two schnauzers and, and previously had another mini schnauzer. And another director friend of mine, Chris McQuarrie, also has schnauzers. So I was like, well, if I'm going to have a dog, it's got to be the dog from space, right? So <laughs> we have a, a miniature schnauzer called Peter, who's Peter li lying Aww. next to me. My, like I said, my girlfriend named him at least a year before we got him. <laughs> So it was like the dog the dog had to kind of like take its mantle of like the name that it had already been it given. It had to fit the name, not Yes, he does that. Oh, that's so sweet. So I'm gonna take you you were born in Dorset? Yeah. Whereabouts? Swanage. Oh Swanage. Oh, it's gorgeous down there. Yeah. I lived in Swanage until I was seven. My mum and dad were like first teachers. They'd met at teacher training college. And they both, and then they became art teachers and then they dropped out of that and became kind of artists and used to kind of screen print oh. and do silk dresses and scarves and sort and, um, and other kind of illustrations done on sort of handmade paper. So there's a lot of kind of screen printing. And then, and then we moved when I was seven to Somerset, the city of Wales, which in fact is where hot fuzz is shot. Oh, and Wells is gorgeous. Yeah. I mean, the funny thing is, I don't know whether you ever felt this when you were growing up, is that all the things that are great about those places 
especially when you're a teenager, you come to, I mean, you know, Somerset and Dorset, they both have their bucolic charms. But when you're a teenager, that's like the last thing you want. Exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. It's funny. Now, the irony is lots of my friends are moving down to Somerset. Lots of, lots of my friends in the film industry who are from london mm-hmm. are buying places in somerset which is like and i just find it ironic because i'm thinking oh that's the place that i tried to escape from I, those places are lovely growing up as a kid and when you hit teenagehood you you, you want to get to either to london or manchester or edinburgh you want to get to a big city don't you yeah i mean i think i enjoyed it when i was was younger and and, and obviously i look back at it with such fondness now and i'm so happy that i grew up in the country I think it kind of informs a lot of what I do in a way because I think that maybe the sort of fanciful nature of the films that I've made uh, or even the TV shows I've done that kind of have this aspirational element of wanting to sort of be part of the action or even whether it's like good or bad, like something like Last Night in Soho is not an adventure that somebody chooses to go on, but it is like there's something kind of, it's, it's still an adventure. And I think... Growing up in a very quiet part of the country, I think it would be this kind of dissonance between watching films that seem so, I mean, to quote one of your films, The Blues Brothers, watching something like The Blues Brothers when I was like 10 years old in Somerset and seeing like Chicago and those car chases, I'm just like, this is so far removed from my existence, but I want to, I want to be part of it. Whatever it is, I want to be part of it. And like you said, it's like going to, even before going to London, my nearest city, which had things going on culturally was Bristol. Okay. That had a music scene and it had cool like shops, clothes shops, comic shops, record shops, you know, cinemas that would show artier films. As soon as I got a car when I was 17, I just made a beeline for this cinema called The Watershed in Bristol that would show independent films and art house films and films that weren't really showing in my hometown. And then then, then I moved to London when I was 20. So it was, again, just kind of wanting to be closer to what you perceive as the the action, you know? Exactly. I I know. Well, I I mean, I I was the opposite to you because I grew up in, well, a suburb. I I grew up in Neeston. So I always longed... You know, I'd see things on telly about in the car. I always longed to be that kid who grew up in the country. So, I mean, it's it's kind of you always want want what the other person has, don't yeah. you? Yeah, I mean, the grass is literally greener in the yeah, country. Exactly. <laughs> but you know, what was weird for me because I didn't plan what happened to me. I was suddenly age sixteen. You know, going to America and going to France and going, you know, Japan. I mean, it was in insanity, really, because I I'd, I'd really never been past the um, North Circular Road, <laughs> really, which was so weird. But um, Presumably you never went abroad until no. you started modelling, right? No. No, That's because I grew up in the 1950s, so it was it was pre-package holidays. And we, I mean, we weren't, my d- mum and dad weren't poor, but, you know, they were, my dad was um, a master carpenter. He worked at the film studios, actually. And Which he one? built, he, um, Boreham Wood. Oh, really? And he built sets. Yeah. And then when the film industry kind of had a bad patch, he went into doing commercials because, you know, there was money, money being spent on those and not on the film 
the film business went, went into a kind of lull then. Yeah. And um, so you, we would go on holiday once a year, but we'd go to the South Coast. This was in the late, late 50s. So, we'd, you know, I didn't even have a passport. And actually, when I, when I went to get my first passport to go to Paris to do the Paris collections, they wouldn't give me one because it came under the, um, the Slaves Act of 18-something because I was only 16. And oh, I, wow. had, I, I had this little man who stuck by the book and he would not give me a passport. And oh, it was a whole rigmarole. We got one in the end, but um, it was like I had to get my mum and dad to come up to the passport office because they thought I was going into white slavery or something. I was actually going to work for American Vogue. I mean, that's the same thing, isn't it, essentially? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you could say that, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, the passport office weren't entirely incorrect, were they? No, they were not. <laughs> I was no, you're right actually, but it was very frustrating at the time because I'd never be, I was dying to get to Paris. It was so exciting. I, I never <laughs> went abroad until I was eighteen. I never went abroad with my parents. They a similar thing. They couldn't really afford to. We would, and we were already on the south coast, so our like holidays would be, which I only really remember going on holiday once or twice camping, like the Isle of Wight and and Devon. And Cornwall, and that was maybe about it. But the Isle of Wight, have you been there recently? We, Lee and I went like two years, well, three years ago before the pandemic. And it's lovely because for me, it's like going back in time. It's, it's like the 1950s. Oh, yeah. It's, it's lovely. It's kind of stayed in that old-fashioned English way. It's kind of weird. It's funny. I was watching that film the other day with David Essex, That'll Be the Day. Oh, yeah. And... um when I was watching that, I was thinking, wow, where did they shoot this? Because they got the period detail really, really good, like really like good 50s. And it's like, oh, it's on the Isle of Wight. Oh, well, <laughs> it's it. it oh, been left behind in the 50s. Yeah, well, it has. And that it, that's its charm in a way for us. But um, so when you were living in Wells, is that, I mean, your mum and dad weren't into being filmmakers. I mean, what, what, what no. sparked it off or... Because I read in your bio that you always had a little camera that you would film things on at quite a young age, right? Yeah, my mum and dad, basically, they went back to teaching. I mean, reluctantly, they didn't really want to teach. And, um, you know, it was just something that some of their artistic endeavours hadn't mm -hmm. taken off in the way that they hoped. And they both went back to teaching comprehensive schools, which, you know, I didn't really enjoy my mum particularly, I think. My dad sort of continued doing it in college until he retired. But basically, the best thing about mum and dad and something that I just always be grateful for is that they were just encouraging me and my brother to sort of take up pursuits which were far beyond anything that they knew. Like, we didn't have any connections within the film industry. We didn't know anybody who was involved in film or TV. But I think because they used to take me and my brother to the cinema at an early age, and I think back in the days, you wouldn't get away with this now, but because they used to do craft fairs in Dorset. And usually if my mum was running the store where they were selling their screen printing, my dad would like just dump me and my brother at the cinema um, back in the days when they still had double bills. And that would be, that would be our babysitter. Like, That's hysterical. Today, <laughs> you wouldn't leave like a five-year-old and a seven-year-old at the cinema for like six hours. That would, that would not fly. Um, <laughs> But we thought it was amazing. You know, we loved it. And 
So that was kind of like, I remember around that time, starting with Star Wars in 1977, and then with each kind of like year until we left Dorset, like 81, all of those fantasy, sci-fi, animation, movies, like we would just see them all usually as a sort of, as like I said, like instead of a babysitter, they would just kind of get taken to the cinema or left at the cinema. And so me and my brother both like were interested in doing something in film or animation or makeup. We weren't really sure what exactly it was. I, I, and it wasn't really until I was 14, my parents, they bought me and my brother, you know, like one of those joint birthday and Christmas presents. <laughs> <laughs> This was a joint birthday and Christmas present for me and my brother. So it was covering Christmas and birthday for me and my brother. So it's like four presents in one, but it was a, okay. a secondhand Super 8 camera. Oh. And so once we had that, we started kind of like making movies in the garden. Like the first thing we did is we, it had a slow motion. You could shoot in slow motion on the Super 8 camera. So the first thing we did was throw all of our toys out of the window in slow motion. It was almost like a sort of Zabriskie point, but with like sort of like action men and like <laughs> blinging out of the window. And then, and then around that time, I think I became aware of through sort of le less through, this is back in the days before the internet where unless there was a book in your school library or your local library, like you just had to, or it was in a magazine, like it was very difficult to get information on how films were made, who directors yeah. were, where they started. You could only really go on the work itself. But when I was then in my teenage years, I started to read about directors who were coming through at that point who weren't from Hollywood, who weren't kind of, there was no nepotism. They were sort of self-made directors, whether it be Sam Raimi, who made The Evil Dead, who was like in Michigan and just started making a horror film when he was 18. And then like three years later, it's at the Cannes Film Festival. Or like then later people like Peter Jackson, when he started making films in New Zealand, just mm -hmm. on the Sundays with his friends. And so those kind of stories really started to be the light bulb of like, oh, you know, I could do this. And so that's what really got me started. And, and then with the Super 8 camera, I started to get a bit more serious about making films with my school friends in some sense. So <laughs> that's what I spent between the ages of like 15 and 18, oh, you know, and then going through into art college as well. I just, through till I was 20, I was just like making kind of shorts and then. And like, did you send them off to kind of competitions or? or that yeah. You just I mean, back then, again, this is in a pre-internet age where like nowadays, like people could become, teenagers could become superstars overnight by putting something on TikTok. But back then, there was nowhere really to send things that were occasionally, like there were some festivals, there used to be a thing called the Co-op Young Filmmakers Festival. And then occasionally there'd be things on TV. And when, when I was 17, going live, which was the Saturday morning kid show at the time, they had a competition for comic relief where asking young filmmakers to make a film about some of their causes. And I made a film about the lack of wheelchair access at cinemas. I'd seen it on Barry Norman. I thought, well, that's a good thing to make a film about. Mm -hmm. So I made this little animated film in my bedroom. I'm not going to sound completely alt altruistic here. It sounds like, oh, what a, what a noble cause, Edgar. But there is another part to it, which if I'm 
I'd be lying if it wasn't this wasn't part of it. <laughs> a girl that I fancied at school saw the thing on going live and said, "Hey, you should do that competition." So when Fiona Lennon said I should do it, I was like, "Right, I'm gonna I'm gonna do that competition," <laughs> and, and I and I won. Like so, I won the whole thing. So I was on TV. You can see it on YouTube. There's there's I was on going live when I was like 17 years old, and and on the competition I, I won a video camera so then once I had the video camera which is something that my parents or you know wouldn't have been able to afford then it was really like off to the races and I was like just making like films the entire time with my friends at school sometimes with my teachers at school so that's that's kind of what really got it started and then it was something where I was just going to try and manifest <laughs> this idea of being a director without really knowing anybody in the business at all, just like, I was just going to somehow make this happen. Amazing. But it just shows you if you, I mean, you obviously became obsessed with doing it and your camera. And yeah. you, you know, when you talk to people that where, where their careers have suddenly kind of taken off like yours has, it's usually, it, it is, it is an obsession, isn't it? That you just can't, even dream of doing anything else i mean did you ever when you left art school did you work in any other field not really what kind of happened was through sixth form and on holiday from art college i used to work at the local supermarket which actually then featured in one of my shorts and also later featured in hot fuzz <laughs> the very same <laughs> store summerfields in well somerset at the time but when i left art college i made this movie the summer i left and it was like a super, super no budget movie. The shooting budget of it was 11 grand. And we shot for 21 days on that. And the local newspaper editor of the Wells Journal at the time, he had sort of been following what I'd been doing and, and was, you know, was our sort of sole investor at that point. And so I made a film straight out of, and so it was, it was, again, it's like, like you said it's through obsession and even through like naivety in terms of you just think this we're, we're gonna do this this is gonna happen also youth i mean youth has when you're that young you believe and you it's that that's a wonderful thing about youth if there's a talent there you just go with it don't you yeah and i think when you get older you start to get kind of maybe more bogged down in reality and i think <laughs> I, I always think about the film that I made when I was 20 is I think if anybody had thought about it for more than a second, it would have entirely collapsed. <laughs> it was, was, it, was this the fistful of yeah. fingers? Yeah. And you, like, it's not the best movie of all time. Um, it's the best no, but movie. It was a movie. You made it. That's amazing <laughs> at 20. I mean, it's amazing. It's the best movie that came out in 1995 called A Fistful of Fingers. That That is the, the soul has the sole claim to that title. Um, <laughs> But I mean, is that thing where I think about it a lot in terms of, I think after I made it, I had this immediate kind of remorse that I'd put something on film that wasn't good enough. And I felt that almost immediately, as soon as I saw like a cut of the movie, it wasn't as good uh, like on the screen as it was in my head. Mm -hmm. But then I think maybe my expectations of what it could be were sort of too high, you know? And, and that was funny is that when it eventually came out, uh, it came out in the Prince Charles Cinema in London, and it got some good reviews. You know, it got some bad reviews as well, but it got some good reviews. Reviews that at the time, and again, as I was like so naive, that probably would have been good enough for me to go to LA with a clipping from Variety and saying, hey, my film got a good review in Variety. I'm available to direct another movie. I didn't think of doing that at all. 
that was the thing. And so around that time, just before it came out, I worked as a researcher at London Weekend Television for about nine months. And that was like a lifesaver because it was like a good paying job. Yeah. But then when the movie came out, I had stopped doing that. And I was like on the dole. And it was just sort of a thing which, you know, a lot of filmmakers go through of that thing of just the, that dissonance between I have a movie out in the cinema, but I am also completely broke. <laughs> <laughs> But don't you think, I mean, in, in the arts, that happens all the time. Oh, yeah, and especially now. I mean, yeah. yeah. People outside of the art, you know, the art world, the film world, the whatever, you know, our kind of business, they always think that everyone in our business is really, really rich and yeah. drives around in limousines. <laughs> and majority, majority of actors, writers, directors, whatever, models. Bands. You know, and especially especially bands now it's like i think people think that as soon as you're on tv you must be a millionaire but of course the truth of that is is it it is very different it ain't true it ain't true so you did Shaun of the dead in 2004 right yeah so in the intervening nine years (laughs) (laughs) so well i basically so I'd made this film, which I wasn't that happy with, but some people liked it and enough to get me, you know, like, I think I may be like sort of sometimes a bit too tough on it. It's a very silly film, but like, you know, it got me an agent and, and I started doing TV immediately because um, Matt Lucas and David Walliams, who were my, my age at, around this time where I was 21 and they were like 21 and 23 and they were doing their first ever sketch show for the Paramount Comedy Channel. And because I had this film out in the West End, they suggested that I direct it. So basically what happened is that, and I always kind of feel this sort of being my college in a way of extending my education is like directing TV. Now, it's very strange to kind of, I mean, is that thing, I mean, I can't think of any other way to explain it as I was kind of learning what I was doing as I was going. And, you know, I appreciate the people who, like humored me along the way because then I did a couple of things on cable and then when I was like 23 I I started directing at the BBC and that was that was also kind of I mean amazing and incredible training and also strange because I was so young and I think I got on with a lot of people there but there were other people who were like who the who the fuck is this kid <laughs> <laughs> Who's this kid who can barely grow a beard and, and why is why is he in charge? And I think when they found out that I wasn't somebody's kid, I think in a weird way they would oh, have yeah. they would have liked it more if nepotism was involved. Because <laughs> if there was nepotism in, involved, they could have at least got their head around it. Oh, Edgar Wright is the is the son of the director general. But it, it wasn't that. It was like I was this kid from Somerset and he's like, what is this kid doing? I was remember one of the shows that I did. Uh, was with Alexi Sale. I did this. Uh, that was the first thing I did at the BBC, actually. Alexi Sale's merry-go-round, and and I, I I really enjoyed doing it. And I, I think the the end result there was some really good stuff in it. And I I got on well with Alexi, but I do remember specifically something he said to me one day on the shoot. He was sitting in his like actors, you know, his chair, yeah, yeah. and he was looking at me, and he said, Edgar, we have to get you some adult clothes. <laughs> <laughs> So I was like, I was probably like wearing a Dr. Seuss cat in the hat top that I'd got from Camden Market and looking like a runner, you know. I mean, one of the reasons I grew a beard is because, you know, you'd be on a set and people would just think you were like the PA. Give me a cup of tea, please. Yeah. 
<laughs> that would happen as, as late as Shaun of the Dead. That would happen. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. And Spaced was a huge hit, wasn't it? I mean, I, lo- I loved it. That was that was with Simon and um, yeah, Jessica Simon Pegg Hines. and Jessica Hines, oh, they, love, then Stevenson at the her. time. I mean, that was the last bit of TV that I did because I'd done stuff at the BBC, um, like Alexi Sale, and I did, you know, a, a French and Saunders Christmas special. That was the last thing I did at the oh, BBC. Did I did the I did the Titanic one, if you remember that. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, oh well, I, I love I love them. Yeah, and um, and then I went to and then I did the um, space with Simon and Jessica, and that and that was that was amazing because unlike maybe some of the things I've done at the BBC. Simon and Jess were the same age as me and we're all in our twenties. And so to make a show on channel four, not a big budget show and quite experimental, Mm. it was sort of extraordinary. And I, I, I really just feel so fortunate that we had the chance to do that. We were in our twenties and we were making a show on channel four and, um, it was just, that was just an incredible time because it really felt like, then you were sort of putting your own life as, you know, renting flats and living in North London, like just straight on the telly. And it was, it was extraordinary time. Did, did you know Simon before or is that where you met him? No, we had done it. The other show that I'd done at the Paramount Comedy Channel was oh, okay. with Simon and Jessica in it. And they, they weren't friends of yours before that. No, but we had met Simon. There was a, there was a sort of strange connection. Simon went to, Bristol University with David Walliam and there was this whole kind of Bristol comedy mafia that was coming like I mean I guess before that TV comedy had always been Oxbridge and then there was like a wave of people that came from Bristol University Chris Morris like um, Matt Lickson David Walliam Simon Pegg um, you know and the family Moore who was a comedy producer all kind of came out of, of Bristol and that's the irony is that Simon was, <laughs> I didn't meet him until I was in London. And, you know, this is the funny thing. So I'd been in Somerset having sort of aspirations of like being a Hollywood director and making movies. When in reality, the person that I would make my breakthrough movie with was only like- <laughs> Up the road. <laughs> that's the thing is like, it was, it was like, oh, he was right. He was right there. In fact, we, we figured out later that we'd gone to the same cinema, the watershed in Bristol to see movies. And we figured out that there was one particular film that we were in the cinema at the same time, that's like so six cool. years before we met, because we both went to see Akira, the um, anime oh. film at the at its UK premiere at this animation festival in Watershed. And it came up when we were making space and he said, oh, I saw Akira at its premiere at the Watershed. I said, I was there too. <laughs> so it was this, <laughs> you know, there's this kind of kismet of like, oh, I was in the same room with this guy who I you would eventually- You were destined to meet, Edgar. <laughs> <laughs> but life is like that, isn't it? But so then, so then Shaun of the Dead was, what year was that? 2004. 2004. Wow. And that that was the big breakthrough for you, wasn't it? Yeah. And it was I mean, wasn't it huge when it came out? I remember I remember well, when it, it came out. We when we made the movie, we were just excited to make a movie. And for me, I was excited to make a second movie. I mean, I felt like when I made Shaun of the Dead, because nobody had really seen Fistful of Fingers, it felt like I got that very lucky break of getting a chance to make my second debut. Like nobody who worked on Shaun of the Dead had even seen my first film. Like Simon and Nick have still never seen it to this day. <laughs> 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 My producers have never really seen it. So it's this funny thing where I was 
but and I got Shaun of the Dead off the back of my TV work. So it was this thing where I felt like, oh, I'm so fortunate I get a chance to make a second first movie, you know? And but when we were making, I don't think we had any aspirations of how big it could be. We just wanted to make a good film and for it to be on at the cinema in the UK. And so then that year after it came out, what I, I started to fit, it was always the year where I felt like, and I'm sure this happened to you when you went to like Paris and New York, it felt like that moment of like when the world suddenly gets smaller and suddenly people that you really admire have seen what you've done and then you're meeting them. And that year when we started doing, first the film came out in spring and then by the summer, me and Simon were doing this like, 18 city press tour in the states and then the movie came out in september in the states and during that period pretty much every hero <laughs> that i you know had looked up to or people who had inspired the movie had seen the movie and then i was meeting them and it, i really felt like just sort of such a surreal and incredible uh time period where just the, the world was getting smaller exactly what like you were describing yeah. about you know going abroad you know as a model when you were 16 and it i mean you i mean i as we said we've met the first time albeit virtually today although we've emailed each other but it doesn't seem to what happened to you which was you know as being so major you seem to be very grounded very down to earth you you seem really nice <laughs> well it hasn't gone to your head is what i'm saying and, um, I, I hope not. I mean, nice. I, th I think that's something where maybe part of that is that I try to sort of, I try to remain a consumer at the same time. I think there are some people kind of who, you know, make movies and sort of disappear behind the kind of like the, the gates of their mansion <laughs> and then never mix with the public ever again. I mean, we laugh about it, but that does, that does happen, happen to people and it, it it's, more more so i think on that side of the atlantic than on this yeah. side I, I, I think yeah i think being in the staying here keeps you more grounded london and, will keep you grounded for sure yeah like and i think that's one of the reasons i like living here is that uh, it's yeah i think you don't become kind of divorced from rea reality like you could do in hollywood and stuff yeah so maybe that's it i i just i just also that like, i've remained like a fan I started as a film fan and I'm still like yeah. a film fan. Important, yeah. And I think with that, you also kind of like, it's important to go and see movies with the public. I think if you just kind of like swan around, you know, festivals and go to premieres and, and don't go and like see films with the kind of the public, sort of you could lose touch with reality, you know? Exactly. And and you, you obviously you write all your, your movies. So do, do you kind of see them in your head first? Or do you write a script and think, I mean, when you, like, for instance, when you did Shaun of the Dead, did you think I'm going to do a horror movie with a twist and there's going to be this guy? Or do you kind of get a visual? Because your films are so, that's why I love them so much. I mean, the visuals of them are amazing. And that reminds me a lot of, you know, because obviously the person who was important in my life who changed my career was Ken Russell, and he was completely visual. I mean, lots of people hated it because he'd go off on f fantasies. and But that, that was the wonder of him in a way. And it upset a lot of people. But No, but I mean, it's also it. the reason that he's incredible because it's like you feel that you're 
getting a look into his mind mm. in, in a way that you don't with some of the directors that it, it, it does with Ken Russell. It does feel very personal to him. Um, I guess though, most of the films, they do, they do come as visions in a way. It's like this, the sense of something or a moment. It was Shaun of the Dead. It was, we had done this zombie scene in space and me and Simon had had so much fun filming it that we just started to wonder aloud whether there was like a whole movie in that. But then there were other things like I remember vividly being in Islington. My girlfriend at the time was away and I decided I just bought, I'm not, I would say this, I'm not a video games nerd anymore. People assume that I must know everything <laughs> about video games, but I honestly, just before Shaun of the Dead is when I stopped playing video games. Um, but I remember that, that I was playing this game, Resident Evil 3, which was like a zombie game. And I had stayed up like for 32 hours playing it like an <gasps> idiot. And I remember then walking out into the daylight on a Sunday morning to the news agent to get some milk to put in like some tea, <laughs> some PG sips. And uh, I just remember walking across the road when it was deserted and thinking, what would happen if zombies like came? Now, what would I do? Like, I'm an idiot. I don't have any weapons. How would I defend myself? In the UK, we don't have any guns. What am I going to do? So it's kind of like this apocalypse oh, scenario. So, and then I sort of spoke to Simon and him and Nick had had sort of similar things that they would talk about what they would do in the advent of a zombie apocalypse. So you start to formulate that and then it's the tone. With, with Hot Fuzz, it was sort of born out of growing up in Somerset and it being sleepy and bucolic. I know. But, but watching... That was, yeah. I mean, there's bits in that that are really funny when he first arrives there. <laughs> Well, sort of in a way, the character of Danny Butterman, played by Nick Frost, is is sort of how I felt as a as a kid, being in Somerset, which is not without its crime. I should sort of play that down, but maybe that happens more behind <laughs> closed doors. But um, but you know, watching something like Dirty Harry on TV, it feels like just like that's in a that's in a completely different universe to where I live. Yeah. So it was kind of like like making a movie that bridges the gap. And then other other things that come out of the world's end, which is the later one that we did, that came out of a feeling whenever I used to go back to my hometown, that with each successive year that I would go back at Christmas to see my family, less and less people would remember who you were. And you started to feel like an alien in your hometown. And then that was something like, oh, there's something in that. Or like, oh, it feels like every time I go back, it's like nobody remembers who you are. And like, it feels like, I remember saying specifically to a friend, I said, oh, every time I go back home, it starts to feel more and more like Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And then you think, mm, there's, some, oh, there's something in there. There's no idea there. <laughs> so all of them, like, and then recent ones like Baby Driver or Last Night in Soho, the germ of the idea could come a long time before. Baby Driver, like, the germ of the idea came when I was living in Wood Green in like 1995. I, lo I love, I, I've just, I rewatched that last week. I mean, I saw it originally. It's so good. Oh, it's thank such you. a great film. There's parts in that when, is it An Ansel, yeah. the lead boy, who's wonderful? Is he a trained dancer? Because he yeah, moves he, so yeah. beautifully. When he he's running, ballet. you know, and he's jumping. I mean, it, it's almost like a musical. And, well, and no, your I mean, use of music is yeah. incredible. I, I always like, um, I haven't done you know, like a full musical yet, but I always got gravitate. Oh, I think you should. No, you I know. Should <laughs> I'd like to. I mean, it's difficult to kind of, people always say that to me, but it's funny Like this year, like lots of musicals came out and none of them did that well. So it kind of doesn't seem like necessarily 
it always feels like a thing that directors want to do and whether the audiences are still there is like is, is another question mm, you know true. i would love to do a musical and finding the right thing would be amazing but but your way of doing a musical would be so different from i, I yeah. imagine watching your films which are all so different although that i i can kind of see i mean the visuals and the music so to see you do a, a musical musical would be i think really interesting because your take on it would be so different well it's, in, it's interesting oh we running on sorry uh, i'll just uh, you know i'll just make sure actually um i'll just see if i can delay somebody coming around actually Wait, could you well, we can wind it up if you're... I'll just, I'll just find just... myself 15 minutes or something. Pardon? Find myself 15 minutes. That'd be lovely. I'm waffling, sorry. <laughs> no, it's absolutely fascinating. Oh, yeah, I was just going to... I mean, yeah, I know I can... I can um, go on over to you. I just pick you up? Go into it, yeah. <clears throat> I, I guess in a way, like a lot of my movies... Like sort of uh, sort of semi musicals, like Baby Driver is is sort of an action musical, and then Scott Pilgrim versus the World, you know, has many musical sequences in it. So that's again sort of like an action musical. And then last night in Soho, there were big musical sequences, and yeah. I was sort of conceived of that as being almost like a like a horror musical, and the way of you know. So it it, it is something that I really and it's funny that you did the the boyfriend actually because probably the first. My my mother used to talk about Busby Berkeley a lot, and I think I was always aware of Busby Berkeley more through people doing riffs on Busby Berkeley, whether it's in The Boyfriend or even in like the Muppet movie. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and then later, I I saw the movies, and I remember when I was probably at art college, I started watching the original Busby Berkeley films, and just like total like mind oh, blowers, mind like, blowing. Well, I I I didn't I didn't I wasn't aware of them growing up. And when I met Ken, and we were going to make the boyfriend, he, we he spent a year with me. Well, not with me, but every week he would scream. He'd put a sheet up in his house. In, he had a old house in Notting Hill and I'd go over there and he'd screen Busby Barkley movies, oh, yeah. all the Fred and Ginger movies, which I'd seen some on telly, but you know, I didn't really know them. And it was, it was such a, a wonderful education because he wanted me to absorb all that for the film we were going to make. So it was wonderful for me. There's actually, there's, there's two connections I want to make actually like to what you're just saying that refer to like films that you've done. That's interesting. Funnily enough, like Ken's widow e emailed me the other day because she had just watched Last Night in Soho and oh, she yeah. sent me this amazing email where she said, I wish Ken was alive to see this film. Yeah. I think he would have really loved it. And then she said, it also, the flat that she's living in is so similar to his old place in Bayswater <laughs> and his, his landlady. I guess it's not, not the place that you went to. No, no, no. I'm talking, I mean, I'm Later, talking. Later, yeah. Much earlier when I knew, no, she because I when I knew Ken, he was married to a lady called Shirley Russell who did all his costumes. Yeah, and I think this lady you're talking about was a later wife. Yeah, but then she was talking about his, I think his first place in London. And oh, okay. She, and she had, she said that his flat in Bayswater that he had a landlady who was not dissimilar to like Diana Rigg in the movie, and she sent me a photo of like his old digs, and it looked exactly like a still oh, from the funny. movie. It was really spooky, and I was just, 
uh, I just was so kind of moved by this email. And then the other thing I was going to say, talking about, it's funny, you know, talking about like action films that are musicals, because mm-hmm. of course, like a huge in- inspiration to me is like the Blues Brothers and John Landis's work and like just the way that he used music. And and that that film, like when I was growing up, was a big inspiration to me because the combination of like action and musical numbers was so sort of heady and almost like overstimulating. I just like it was something that I just I just could not stop yeah. watching that I mean, film. Sort of, I mean, I have I have to just add for the listener, I'm in it for about three and a half minutes, but but it's a very Listen, funny little you, piece. You're in it and I'm not. I think it. you claim credit. You're in the Blues Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> There's no getting around it. But it was, I mean, it was an amazing filming because sadly, John Belushi wasn't very well at the time. So I went there for like three days filming and I was there for like two weeks because... <laughs> It was very hard to get him on a well day, you know, um, without going into too much detail. But um, I got to know uh, Dan quite well, who was absolutely lovely and very sweet to me. How did how did you come to be in the movie? I just got they just I just got a call through my agent. I think they were doing, you know, they, you know, they were doing cameos, weren't they? They were doing um, like Aretha Franklin did a cameo. And I think they just wanted a a woman from that period who was very well known drawing up in an E-type jag, you know, filling. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know, maybe there were other people on the list, but it came through to me and I, I, you know, I, I loved them from Saturday night live and things. And I was, I was very happy to do it, but, um, but it was, you know, it was, there was a sadness by the time it came out because Belushi had left us, but, um, but it's a nice one to be in. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> I know John quite well. And in fact, I did a screening of the Blues Brothers when I was editing Baby Driver and John happened to be in town. John Landis. This yeah, is. John Landis, yeah, 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 the director. I was talking about John Belushi. He, he was lovely, actually, John Landis. Well, when I did this screening, like it had already like sold out. So I sort of said, and I found out he, he was in town. So I said, hey, you should come and do a Q&A. Let's just not tell anybody. <laughs> so it was Brilliant. the most amazing thing because it was like, it's not like you had to promote it on with Q&A with John Landis. It was like, I just said at the start of the movie, said, oh, don't go anywhere at the end because there's going to be a surprise. And then the surprise is like, and here's the director, John Landis. Absolutely. It was amazing. He's a nice man. I remember him being really nice. Well, he's so, I mean, he's so kind of like full of amazing stories. And there are a lot of those people who in Hollywood who, you know, I've been lucky enough to get to know who, who have a link to the past. Because it is that thing, you know, you're saying about going to Hollywood and meeting Fred Astaire. When you have the opportunity to do that, you have to grab it with both hands. Oh, and like, absolutely. and people like John Landis and Joe Dante and like, they, they knew all of the older like sort of stars and directors who are no longer with us. So you're always aware that this, this, this thing of beyond books and stuff, there's these kind of oral histories and stories that have to be kind of handed down. Absolutely. And, and they do tell the most amazing stories, those people, as do the stars. I mean, when I did a, a, a play on a music a musical on Broadway and on opening night, and I, I don't remember the, the um, performance because I was so nervous, but we got through it. And, um, and it must have been all right because we ran for nearly two, two years. But as I came down the stairs from my dressing room, because I was just so amazed that I'd got through the, the night without passing out with fear, uh, this person picked me up and said, that was wonderful, darling. With the, And it was a woman with a very deep brown and put me down. It was Lauren Bacall. Oh, wow. 
And it was like, oh, my God, it's Lauren. But, you know, who was like this amazing. And we became really good friends while I was in New York. I loved her. And she was, and, you know, her stories were extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. It was very difficult for me to get through the production of Last Night in Soho without just, <laughs> without just kind of like nudging Dinah Rigg, Rita Tushigam, Terence Stamp, and and Margaret Nolan. To, Diana and Margaret now are no longer with us. Like, but just to kind of ask them stories about everything. And in some cases, I had to do follow-up stuff. It would be stuff because when you're shooting a movie, there's not a lot of time to talk. So, no. you know, then both with Diana and Margaret and Rita is like, hey, I wanna let, let's meet up. Oh, I wanna, I've still got questions on it. You. you know, oh, she was wonderful in it, Diana, I thought. Yeah, I had such Absolutely an amazing time brilliant. with her. I, I feel so fortunate. It's that thing when somebody passes away, you can be sad about it or you can just think, how lucky was I to get to know her and work with her? And even hear like a 20th of those stories, <laughs> like maybe like even less I than that. Know. Before we go, because I know you've got to go, is there going to be a baby driver too, please? Hope so. <laughs> maybe. I think sort of it's, it's, a, it's a very sort of funny time in, in Hollywood at the moment. It's a sort of very transitional time where I don't think anybody in the business really knows quite what's going on at the moment. Oh, really? Is that because of the pandemic? Yeah, I think yeah. sort of things were kind of, yes, I think that yeah. that kind of exacerbated things. And so it's definitely kind of an interesting period to be in. And I, I don't think anybody quite knows exactly how things are going to shake out, but we shall see. Oh, good. Watch watch this space. Watch this space, yeah. <laughs> oh, and congratulate. You've just been nominated for the BFI, oh. what, Governor's Board or something, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I, I saw it. It flashed up on my screen. No, it, That's exciting. What does that entail? Well, you're on an advisory board for four years. And so, uh -huh. you know, you're part of the, I guess, part of the decisions that get made, but also helping kind of like promote everything that they support, which is, which is, I'm very flattered to be asked because I do, I do spend a lot of time at the BFI, like the BFI South Bank is my favorite cinema in London and I go there a lot so I saw you doing the boyfriend for number one <laughs> but also I just I just so the idea of actually being sort of part of that and, and you know seeing what I can do to help is is really just so flattering to me because I think what you know what they what they do in terms of contextualizing film history mm. and restoration is so important That's and amazing, something I yeah. think that people don't really think about how difficult it is and how urgent it is mm. in terms of movies that if we're not careful could sort of just disappear from existence, you know? No, exactly. Well, I think it's very good that, that people like you are asked to do it because it's good to have young blood as well. No, I mean, I, I, I'm very flattered to we're be all, asked. We're doing all the oldies there. <laughs> So I just, last week, I watched your um, biography on Sparks, the band. Well, it was funny because when I saw, I thought, Sparks, Sparks, I, I know that name. And I couldn't think, and then when uh, when I started watching it, I knew immediately who they were because I can remember them. Yeah. You know, when they first came on Top of the Pops. And it, a really fascinating documentary, I have to say. Absolutely amazing. Well, I, I was aware of them when I was very young on top of the pops, uh, maybe not the first appearance, but the sort of the, the their second phase in the late seventies. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and watching them as a five-year-old where they'd be staring down the camera at you and start to feel like you'd done some, you've been naughty. It's kind of like, so why are these guys staring at me? What have I done? Um, I, I, I had just become over the years and over the decades, like a bigger and bigger fan. And what was just confounding to me because not all bands do this is that their work was the equal sometimes superior to what they'd done in their heyday. Like a lot of bands of that time, you know, then people think, oh, the sixties or the seventies is the heyday. And then, you know, no disrespect to the Rolling Stones. I love the Rolling Stones, but they're sort of, you know, on a greatest hits tour for the rest of their career. You know, they, they release new albums, but people want to hear the hits, you know, and with Sparks, they're sort of a bit different because they, because they've never been Rolling Stones or Beatles or Queen big, it's it's sort of weirdly afforded them a stay of execution whereby they've never been big enough to not they they've remained cool by staying like just under <laughs> under the radar the whole yeah. time like they and they have this kind of growing following and what's been really nice since the documentary came out is i think they've booked their biggest tour since the seven- I bet because there's going to be a whole bat from your documentary a whole batch of young people who weren't aware of them? Yeah, who are going to be? But you're right because if if they had been bigger than they were in the beginning, they probably wouldn't have been able to change musically. I think they probably wouldn't exist now. It's that thing. Yes, you're right. They wouldn't have been able to. Because to... when when you become as big as the Stones and the Beatles and Paul McCartney and things like that, they the, the fans dictate what they want to hear. They want to yeah. hear the hits. Yeah, it'd and be it must very be difficult. so frustrating. Yeah, it must be very difficult for the Rolling Stones now to sort of completely change their sound, and people wouldn't wouldn't yeah. want that. The thing with Sparks was interesting is that sometimes there's that thing when a band like that that has a real cult following that some fans are very protective of them, and there was you know sometimes occasionally you'd hear kind of in jest some fans saying, "Oh, don't don't make a don't make a documentary about them, make them more famous because this is this is my <laughs> thing." But then Ron Mayo from the band, he would say, new customers always welcome. And they started touring again, <laughs> like sort of post-pandemic. And there was somebody tweeted something the other day. And I, it was like kind of my proudest sort of tweet. They said, this morning, I did not know who Sparks were. Now they are my favorite band. Thanks, Edgar Wright. And I was like, ah, that's like, like the best thing that anybody could say. That's wonderful. They must love you. Oh, I love them. I mean, they deserve oh. it all. Like they've been. Had you met them before you decided to do a documentary on them? Yes, I had met them. <laughs> I had met them through social media because I was a big fan. And then I, 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 I wondered aloud one day if they were on Twitter. And then when I found their Twitter account, it said Sparks follows you. So I was like, oh my god. <laughs> so I immediately messaged them, and Russell, you know, replied. And then we started. We met. And, and I think actually I had never had any aspirations to make a documentary, but getting to know them in the two years before I asked them to do the documentary, seeing them just like outside of, I mean, they're never quite outside of work. That's one of the things about Sparks. Is like they never seem completely off the clock. I've only, I've only ever seen Russell twice without Ron and I've never seen Ron without Russell. <laughs> I know. It's, it's fascinating. We thought that because it didn't really tell you whether they were, are they married or well they, they always seem to be together their only stipulation and for a band that are very you know kind of that are very private and also for a band that you know kind of really control their image their only stipulation about 
the whole documentary and they didn't have a final cut on it. They let me make the movie, but they said, we don't really want to talk about relationships, particularly current ones. And I respect that because I think... Absolutely, that's fair. Yeah, it's totally fair. And also I think there's a thing that like real fans don't need to know. The kind of the guessing game about their sexual orientation or like what exactly is 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 part of the charm and the appeal because they are whoever you want them to be. Yeah. And and that's that and the question mark is more important than the the truth. No, absolutely. And I have to say, because when I as I say, we it, it's on Netflix, I think, isn't it? Yeah. We went on to, to watch it, and I, and I, when I saw who they were, and I, I thought, oh, I'll, I'll watch half an hour, and I got so intrigued, and it's so well made, and it's oh, thank so. You. I, I, we, we both, both Lee and I ended up really, really loving them. They came across so beautifully, and and it's so wonderfully put. Because some documentaries, kind of drop off do you know what i mean and this one doesn't so you should watch it everyone it's brilliant well one of my i'm a big music documentaries fan and sometimes one of my bugbears sometimes is that some music documentaries they assume you have prior knowledge of the band and so they are only preaching to the converted and what i wanted to do with sparks is i knew it had to be a celebration for some and an introduction for others and that was the key thing yeah. yeah absolutely brilliant before we go i'd just like to say can you tell Lee that I watched the other day on Blu-ray? Oh, what, what did you watch? 1974's Ghost Story. Oh gosh. Which um who else is in the movie? Marianne Faithful. Marianne Faithful. That's so weird because he's about to go off to Prague in a couple of weeks. The the director of that who directed that. St- Stephen Weeks, is oh, that his name? Yeah, Stephen Weeks. Yeah. He's doing a new film in Prague and he's offered Lee a part in it that he's gonna go off for a week and do. The other person in it is the actor who was the model. I mean, why I say model, it was the inspiration for With Nail and With Nail and I, Vivian McCarroll. It's the only oh, yeah, film Vivian that he's McCarroll. in. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, you know, go because Bruce Robinson and Leah older. Did you know Bruce? I ne- I yeah no I never met Bruce I actually. Him. I know people who knew him, but I never well, met him myself. Was, when he wrote that, that was a short story. And he gave it to Lee and an actor called Peter Firth, who they were, they yeah. ended up doing tests together. And they couldn't get the money raised. Something like that happened. So time went on and it ended up being done with McGann and... Richard E. Grant, but- yeah. The other crazy thing about Ghost Story, I mean, you, you probably know this through, through Lee, is that I watched the movie without seeing the making of first. And it's got this 20s mansion... And I thought, oh, where's this? I've never seen this location before. It was in India, wasn't it? Yeah. So it's set in in England, but it was shot in India. That's right. And so the making of was extraordinary because I was watching the movie and I was thinking, wow, this is an interesting location. Are they in Wales? Where are they? It's like, no, they're in India, pretending to be England. Probably the only time that's ever happened. Way before Lee and I met. So I, I, and I have never seen, we were talking about it the other day and I don't think we've got a copy of it. I'm going to send you the Blu-ray. (laughs) <laughs> well, I don't know what what's Blu-ray. It is. I'll what send is, it to you. What is, yeah, but what is Blu-ray? Oh, Blu-ray is like the kind of fancier DVD. If you don't have a Blu-ray and it player, go in it, I have to have a D- Blu-ray player, do I? Well, it might be on DVD as well. I'll figure it out. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm not very technical. I'm getting better since I've been doing my podcast. I'm not the most no. technical. Oh, there's- Wait, that's-, <laughs> that's really good timing. Good timing. It's like the dog I just went off. 
He's getting you out of the pod. Okay, I might have to go and look after the Listen, dog. Thank you, Edgar. It's been such a lovely, lovely chat. Oh, it's I been fantastic. I have, I have more questions for you. So I need to start my own podcast, Coffee with Edgar, and you be my first guest. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, you could do coffee. But thank you. And it was brilliant. The, do- the, do- the dog wants me to stop. So this is yeah, the end of it, I think. He's <laughs> Oh, that was brilliant. I love that his doggy coming in at the end, telling us to finish. <laughs> Quite right. I could have gone on chatting to Edgar for hours, and hopefully I will in the future. But anyway, do check his films. They're brilliant. And Sparks is on now on Netflix. It's fabulous. It's such a good documentary. I think you'll absolutely love it. Oh, by the way, this is the last podcast of this season. So hopefully join me in a few months, maybe at the end of the summer, when we'll have some more interesting people to meet. I look forward to it. Have a good summer. Bye. If this is your first time listening to Tea with Twiggy, please do remember to tell your friends. You can also subscribe for free on your podcast app and listen to all my previous guests. If you want to connect with me, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Twiggy or you can find me on Instagram at Twiggy Lawson. My thanks go to all the people that have helped this podcast happen. Many thanks to James Carroll and all the team at North Bank Talent Management. Thanks to all the team at Stripped Media, including Ben Williams, who edits the show, my producer, Kobe Omanaka, and executive producers Tom Wally and Dave Corkery. The music you can hear now is my version of Waterloo Sunset by The Kinks. If you'd like to hear the whole song, you can find it and all the other songs I've recorded on iTunes and Spotify. So check it out. I look forward to you joining me for my next episode. So see you then. Bye. just heard a stripped media production.